Galatians chapter 3. I'd like to read the, the first five verses. <clears throat> you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let's go to the Lord. Father, as you once again have blessed us with an opportunity to assemble together, Lord, we thank you for this grace and this mercy, this blessing. Lord, we thank you for this place where we can come together, united, one in Christ. And Lord, I ask you this morning as we read over your word that you would convict us of sin and righteousness. Lord, show us the place of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Show us the importance of of the reading of your word and the assembling together that we may be admonished when necessary, that we may be exhorting one another in spirit and in truth. Lord, but help us see the need for Christ, how it's a continuous need. It's not a one time we need fellowship with Christ and then we're good after that. Lord, we need a daily yearning for your spirit. A daily yearning for your person, Jesus Christ. Lord, we need the desire placed in our lives that we may be moved by the Spirit, that we may walk in the Spirit, that we may live in the Spirit, Lord, that everything we do may be not of the man of this flesh, not of this corruptible body, God, but a work of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross made evident, made alive through the power of the transforming Holy Spirit that would conform us to His image. Lord, please this morning, reveal the truth of Your Word to us, that we may live in it, Lord, walk in it, and glory in it. May Christ be exalted in all that we say, think, and do today, Lord, and may You be glorified, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, the... The verse that I would like to focus on would be verse 3. I'll read it again. It says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The matter that we address this morning is a matter of sanctification. If we would read the catechism, once we have here, we had a Tuesday night study in we did use the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. and It defines sanctification as the work of God's free grace, whereby we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. There's a lot to be said about our definitions, both uh, as a corporate, as a church, how we define sanctification, but also how we would view it in our personal lives. And so... That's why I believe the Lord has led me to this particular passage that He would feed us this morning with the understanding of sanctification. Let's, let's go back to verse 2. It says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so I'll ask this question. Are we walking in the Spirit or do we walk in the law? You walk where you live. That's the truth. Are you living in the Spirit or are you living by the law? Because your walk will follow where you live. The immediate is a driving influence of what we believe of salvation and sanctification. How we view those things view, uh, would change our viewpoint and our perspective on salvation and sanctification. It lies within how we see these things. Are we walking by the Spirit or are we walking in the flesh? Does your salvation come... By exercising the outward abilities of human flesh or by ceremonious ways of ritual righteousness. 
That's what Paul was dealing with as he writes this particular epistle. Those who would come and profess the name of Christ to profess that He is sufficient for salvation. He's sufficient to cover the sins. His righteousness is good enough in the presence of God. But then they would immediately fall back onto works of the law. And they would have to add these ceremonious rituals. So in one sense, when we see Paul speak of the law in this situation, he's not necessarily talking about the moral law of God, but he's talking about the ceremonial law of these people, these Judaizers, the ones who would follow these traditions, these rituals. That's the immediate context, the ceremonial law. But we must not take it so far as to separate it from the moral law because even in that sense, we can't take the moral law to the extent in which we believe that it is saving, that it sanctifies because it doesn't. So when we look at it, let's consider the law, all of the laws, in the sense that they're unable to do that which is needed in sanctification. To say that we need these things, these ceremonies, circumcision, communion, whatever it may be, these things that people, these ordinances that they take and make them a ritual rather than a remembrance of what they are, a representation of Christ, if we take those and say that they're necessary then we're proclaiming a false gospel. We're living a false gospel. We're following a false Christ. We're following a Christ that isn't sufficient, that hasn't finished His work on the cross. And I believe that's why it's important that we have a proper biblical view of sanctification. Paul spends some time describing the sovereignty of God in these first five chapters. That's all he does. He doesn't come out and say, God is sovereign, but he explains in definition and deep detail how He is the author and finisher of our faith, how everything that comes comes from God. There's no human man that can will himself to these things. He can't will himself, one, to be saved, but he certainly can't will himself to do better, to become more righteous. He's preaching salvation by faith alone. He's preaching sanctification by Christ alone, by the power of the Spirit alone, by no works of the flesh. Though these things should accompany our salvation and our sanctification, the truth is that no ceremony, no work will ever be good enough to make you holy or to make you even holier. Salvation from Paul's perspective and from the proper biblical perspective never began or was completed by the flesh. Never will be, never has. In no case is true salvation initiated by the flesh nor is it finished by the will of the flesh can sanctification derive from external ceremony this is the overarching question that paul is asking it's rhetorical in nature he says can you usher in sanctification on your own likewise can it arise from some inherent goodness of the man of the flesh This is what he's asking the church because these are people that are living as if they are doing something outwardly, physically, that would make them holier. Can it arise this way? Can it come from the flesh? If salvation is completely and entirely a work of God, mustn't also your holiness be propagated and grown by that same seed, a holy seed? The growth of the spiritual man must come from a spiritual origin. So when Paul is dealing in this particular passage with sanctification, he's saying if your salvation comes from something spiritual, from someone who is holy, then also must your growth, your sanctification, your dying to sin, it must come from someone holy. It must come from Jesus Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit, through His work alone, not through these ordinances and rituals, customs. It must be this holy seed, this metaphorical spiritual seed must by common reason, if we would look at it rationally, it has to be from a vine who is himself spiritual. The root, the seed must be from Christ. The work must be from Christ. Jesus Christ, His Holy Spirit, this is the means by which God would use to conform man to the image of His Son to sanctify That's the subject this morning. You see, as the grace of God has become effectual unto salvation, that being that salvation is given with faith and knowledge of Christ. It comes no other way. Remember this. 
When we think about salvation this morning, think about that it comes from faith in Christ. It comes by no other way. And so if this is true, it alone becomes the proverbial seed, the spiritual seed from which sanctification comes. You can't begin a spiritual life as a new creature like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 and 18 speaks of. You can't become a new creature in Christ and then think by some other means you can grow. You can become holy. You can change. You can become righteous. It's just not possible. From this, we are sanctified and made holy. Christ, the Holy Spirit, the working of the Spirit in our lives through the use of God's Word, the living Word, which is Christ according to John chapter 1. We're truly grafted in. And if we believe this from Romans chapter 11, then wouldn't we also think that our spiritual sustenance comes from a place that is unnatural for the flesh? It can't come from the flesh. If it's something supernatural, if it's something spiritual, and we've been grafted in, then certainly it can't come from the same origin from which we came. If we're grafted in, then so our root must be different. It won't be the root of wickedness. It won't be the root of flesh. It won't be the root of external ceremony and law that will make us holy. Can we say that our deep-seated root of wickedness which because we're all in Adam, we have this. Can we say that it is now brought forth spiritual righteousness when the evidence says that our evil roots bring forth only sin, destruction, and death, condemnation? It's just not plausible. But yet the church, as we see in Galatia, would fall for something like this. They would be soon removed from the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and His perfect submission to the will of God his being the lamb without spot and blemish. And they would go back to that which they were lost in. The very thing that they knew they had been delivered from, they revert back to. And so Paul asks, he says, how can you be so foolish? You've obviously been tricked. It's, it's the oldest trick in the book. It, the, thing that, the very thing that you say you've been saved from, now you've gone back. Paul is asking this question. He's saying, you that have claimed to be saved by the blood of Christ, you've claimed that He is sufficient, and now you have something else. So it's largely rhetorical, but at the same time, this question is a question of rebuke. It rebukes exactly what they're claiming to now follow. He's rebuking the teaching that they're so eagerly willing to embrace. This perfection by the flesh, he says, verse 3. How unwise that you would set aside divine knowledge and wisdom that you have claimed to have, and that you certainly have because He addresses them as brethren. They have this divine knowledge and wisdom and discernment from the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He alone is sufficient. And then now they depend upon outward circumstances, outward ceremony, moral obligations to grow them spiritually. Remember what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He uses the phrase, Jews by birth. And not Gentile sinners. He denotes the fact that all Gentiles are sinners because their natural disposition was one such that they had zero divine revelation of the person of Christ. They had no understanding of who God was or how He instructed His people to behave. They had no basis for righteousness. In one sense, there's a greater condemnation because the Jewish people, they had God's expectations written out in the Old Testament. They were there. But Paul is saying here, the Gentiles, they did not. They have no source of righteousness, no source, no base of morality or righteousness because they have not a word from God. By all accounts, they have no understanding of His expectations. They have no understanding of who He is as a holy and just and righteous God. Gentiles would then naturally also have no basis for salvation. How could they be saved if they knew not that there was a God? They understand not what He expected, then they certainly wouldn't understand that they were in sin. 
And so Paul's bringing this up in the, in the verses 15 and 16 before he addresses what he does in Galatia because he's laying that foundation. They have no idea of how to be righteous. So in one sense, even if you could work towards righteousness, you wouldn't know how because you have no basis of what is righteous. You have no means of purification. You can't be sanctified by the flesh because your flesh doesn't even know what is righteous. There's no expectation. He's saying that they were void of the ability to live righteously, but more importantly, they were ignorant as to what true holiness, true righteousness, and perfection really were. This happens today. It happens in the church. It's prevalent. The masses must act this way because we know that few will find this narrow path. This small path, this small gate that relies totally on the sufficiency of Christ and the ability of His Spirit to transform us and conform us to cause us daily to die to sin, to sin less and less each day. Then as we move to verse 16, He declared the truth of salvation by faith alone. Saying, even though as Jews we were aware of the things that are a mystery to Gentiles, we are able to more clearly see that a man cannot be justified by the law. A man must have faith in Christ. Works of the law still keep us as far from salvation as the ignorance keeps the Gentiles from salvation. And so in one sense, if we look at that, if, ju- if that's true for justification, if our works, righteousness, can't make us justified, then certainly they can't make us holy. Because we need to be holy to be justified. Right? You can't be cleansed without Christ, without faith alone. You can't be cleansed by works. Certainly you won't be justified if you're not cleansed. So they go hand in hand. We can't separate justification and sanctification in that sense. If it must be a work of God, it has to be totally a work of God through the person of Jesus Christ by the power of the revealing of His Word through the Holy Spirit. Salvation and justification come only by the power of the Spirit. Paul's reminding these people. He's saying, likewise does your perfection. If justification and salvation comes by the Spirit, then also must your sanctification, your perfection. Chapter 3, verse 3 again. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, Judaizers have come in. They've got this false gospel with a false message with a counterfeit Jesus Christ. One who isn't sufficient because we need to do all these other things. And people are being taken back by this. They've said, your faith is not enough. And they've placed upon the people, as we see in Matthew, heavy burdens. Heavy burdens that the people are unable to bear. That no one is able to bear. Yet they continue. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul conveys a great truth. He's conveying a truth to the world and ultimately to us as the church when we read this Romans chapter 3 verse 20 that if works cannot justify, then surely they also cannot sanctify. It's very plain. If works could place you in good standing before God, then certainly they could likewise make you holy. After all, if works can save, then that means that there is simultaneously the foregone conclusion that works have been able to create holiness. Now, if we say that, then we also have to say that Christ is not effective, that Christ is not needful, because you could somehow, if you could make yourself holy in the flesh, if you could be sanctified by your flesh as the the church in Galatia was attempting to be sanctified, then you wouldn't need Christ because you could make yourself holy. You could make yourself pure. So by very rational and reason, we can understand that this certainly isn't true. Yet it still exists. It's not rational to the unregenerate man. But it's true. Works can never do these things. For if wicked man were to be made no longer wicked then by that very claim he must have been made holy because his unrighteousness and his unholy lifestyle had through sin separated him from God and now he is thus claiming union with God. So as we look at that, if somehow we were able to become unwicked, then it must be through the power of the Holy Spirit because we know on our own we have no ability to do so. If we're claiming now that we're 
perfect and we're with God in perfect union, then there's only one way that that could be true. And you won't be sitting here. You won't be in an earthly body. It doesn't happen. And I'll explain to you later how we find out what the end of sanctification is. And it's not that we're perfect on this earth. Certainly not. I'll bring that point forth later. But the idea is that there would no longer be a separation if you were perfected. There must be a transition to holiness. You didn't become completely holy overnight. And you won't. But it cannot come from deeds of the flesh. That's what Paul is preaching. And that is the message that I would proclaim to you this morning. It cannot come from legal or moral merit. Never has, never will. In fact, Romans chapter 3 verse 20 teaches us that the real motive behind the law is not that you can become more holy. It's that the knowledge of sin is revealed. So actually the purpose of the law is not to make you a good person, but it's to make you understand that you are a bad person, that you are wicked, that you need Christ. It's not that you can keep this law and it'll somehow make you better. It'll somehow heal your infirmities both spiritually and physically, temporally. But the idea is that as you read, as you become familiar with the law of God, you see just how much you need Christ, just how much sanctification is necessary, and just how much the flesh is unable to do those things. The statement that Paul is screaming is that the law cannot sanctify you. Ceremonies cannot sanctify you. Good deeds, service to the church, service to your neighbor, service to God, without the power of the Holy Spirit and the transforming power of Jesus Christ, it's impossible. It's doing no good. You're still dirty. We're still filthy. We're still disgusting and we need constant changing and cleansing. We need that foot washing from last week. Do you know why Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9? He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That doesn't sound like the sanctification that the church in Galatia was seeking after. But Paul says it because the loss of these things, these things that he calls scuba, dung, it's even worse really if you want to know the truth. He calls it crap. I mean, it's that nasty. He uses an expletive. They represent a loss of earthly things. They have no eternal value. That's what he's saying. Paul is saying, hey, I count them as, as dung because guess what? They have no earthly value. They're temporal. They mean nothing. These items are limited by their existence. They'll die out. They're not eternal. Why? Because they serve the needs of the flesh rather than serving the spiritual needs of man. He doesn't mind losing these things because he knows they have no benefit in the life to come. He's saying, hey, I can lose them because they're temporal. They only benefit the flesh. Food's only good for this flesh, but when this body dies, I have one that'll last forever, and it will do it no good. What I need is Jesus Christ. What I need is sanctification. What I need is the righteousness, he says, that comes from God and depends on faith. Faith in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, only produces knowledge and acquisition of Christ. It doesn't produce hatred. It doesn't produce evil deeds it doesn't produce temporal wealth but it produces the holy spirit the power of the holy spirit the knowledge of christ produces that acquisition of he who is the lamb without spot and blemish he who is enough he who has completed the work of salvation on the cross this is what the knowledge of christ does in turn that leads to transforming that we know who Christ is. Now the Spirit, because He's convicted us of who Christ is and what He has done, we're convicted of our sin and we're transformed now because we want to be like Christ. Not because your flesh wills it, but because God has made you a new creature. There's a Spirit that indwells that will not be overtaken. His will shall be done and you'll fall, you'll fail, but He'll be there to rebuke you. He'll be there chasing you in His love. That's sanctification. 
It's progressive. It's not complete at one time like some people will. This is an important place where we should stop here and take a serious look at sanctification. There are two camps. There's one camp who believes that at the time of salvation that you consecrate yourself to God and somehow you're completely, immediately sanctified. You're completely holy. As much so as you can be. And then there are those who believe in what I believe is a biblical representation of progressive sanctification. That you're constantly being sanctified. The first group errantly believes that they're somehow perfected and they believe that they're loosed from original sin and depravity. That's, that's a rock cornerstone for believing that sanctification is complete on this earth. They, believe, they have to change the definition of sin and depravity. First, they have to say that sin is no longer things that are against what God expects of us. Sin is only those things which you do that are wrong and you openly doing them knowing they're wrong. If you accidentally commit what we would consider sin, it's not really sin unless you know it. They, they have to redefine that. They also have to redefine uh, in, in their understanding uh, of the complete sanctification what total depravity is. They don't believe that they're totally depraved anymore because they say, hey, I'm a new creature. But what they have failed to remember is that this body is temporal. This body's passing away. It says, those of us who are perishing. And so when, when they deny that, then... Maybe they have a case for a complete, total sanctification, but the idea is that we know we'll never escape this depraved nature. Men, by nature, will do that according to their nature. And it's to deny God, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, He will overcome those things through sanctification. So they believe that they're loose from original sin and depravity. This means that there are some who foolishly believe that they're totally obedient, that they're completely devout, and that their love has been made perfect. Think about that. To claim that you are completely sanctified, you have to say that your love for one another is perfect. Your love for your spouse, your children, your neighbor, your enemies. Now if anyone can go forth from there, raise your hand, I want to know, I'll let you preach this message. But it's just amazing. People believe this. They believe that they're totally devout to Christ. They believe that they're sinless. That's what you would have to be. If you're completely holy, if you have stand no longer in need of sanctification, I, who would admit that? I don't need sanctification. I'm, I'm as holy as I can get. But people believe this largely in masses. The Nazarenes believe this. It's part of their, their covenant, their doctrines and beliefs. Unfortunately, many do as well. And I'll even submit to you that many good Reformed Baptists would say that they're completely sanctified. Entire sanctification obtainable in this life. And they say it's brought forth by baptism of the Holy Spirit. It only requires two things, according to certain statements uh, for a large number of its followers. I won't speak for everyone, but it requires faith, a process that begins by the will of man in some cases, and then full consecration to God, which is definitely by any party, an act of the will. They believe that they fully, willfully, on their own, consecrated themselves to God. Both of which occur in this sense where the man's self-will, the will of his flesh, has desire to do these things. That's very amazing. They say you will yourself to believe and then you will yourself to grasp a hold of Christ, which is in great contradiction to Isaiah 64 uh, verse 7, no one arouses himself to take hold of you. No one calls upon your name. Yet people claim this. They claim that they've consecrated themselves to God, lived on their, under their own power, devoted fully to God, and only to God. Let's keep that in mind. So there's another stipulation to believe this. You must believe that you're fully devout to God and only to God. be pretty difficult. They also adhere to the belief that Although they can no longer, although they do no longer sin, because they live above such things, if they do sin, they can lose their perfection, sanctification, and ultimately their salvation. They believe that they can lose all these things. Then another sanctifying experience must occur to restore that said person to their previously known status. Now I'm bringing this up because this is a big issue with sanctification. This this uh, 
molds the way that we view sanctification. This actually molds the way that we see Jesus Christ and how much we need Christ. The second group biblically understands that sanctification is an ongoing process of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Spirit whose perfection is not reached until this life is ended. At the heart of this understanding of sanctification lies a continual need for Christ. If that's the only way that I describe those two camps, one doesn't have a need for Christ except for once and the other has a continual need for Christ, that should be enough to tell the believer, the truly converted believer, that that is what we need. We need progressive sanctification. We need God to make us holier and holier each day. And He does that through the power of His Holy Spirit by the preaching and proclamation and revelation of the truth of His Word. It's a continual need for Christ, a dependence upon His work, not the work of our flesh, as in verse 3 in Galatians. Not upon our will, but His will. And not upon our power, but His power. And certainly, it doesn't happen on our timetable, but in His timetable. According to His will and His purpose. That's why it doesn't happen immediately, because it's done so that whatever is made manifest, whether even when we sin, those things are brought to a knowledge of us. We're, We're condemned by that sin, certainly. But then we're also made aware of that sin, because God is wanting to transform us. Not only that, but... He's teaching us a lesson and whoever else that we're dealing with in that situation. He's showing us grace and mercy that we do still need Him. And that He is faithful. The second group believes that salvation is sure. Salvation is permanent. And it's not able to be lost. If your sanctification is a one-time event, And it relies upon your dedication to Christ, then certainly you would lose it. If you could lose it, you would. There's no doubt about it. It's just like salvation. If you could lose salvation, trust me, you would. Every one of us would. With such an opposing contrast, we must deal with several issues. First, let's look historically. How did the church view this sanctification? How did believers look at sanctification? Did they see it as something that happened in one instance and was done by the flesh? Or did they see that it was something that was an ongoing process, a work of the Holy Spirit through the message of Jesus Christ? Galatians chapter 3 verse 3 tells us that. Let's read it again. It says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul poses the question and says, Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The key here is the tense. The tense of the verb. It tells us everything we need to know about sanctification. Those whom Paul has clearly shown are brethren, saved by the grace of God, the sacrifice that is Jesus Christ, are present tense being perfected. He said, are you now being perfected? He's not denying that they're being perfected. He's not saying that they have no need to be perfected, but he said, you're being perfected now. Tell me by which means are you being perfected. That's progressive sanctification. That's an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus Christ. And so he asked that. The, the verb tense tells us everything we need to know. The issue isn't were they perfect or not perfect. It's by what means were they being perfected. Both Paul and the church realized that they were in a state of becoming sanctified. Being sanctified. The error was contrasting views by what means are you being sanctified. Present tense. By what means is this occurring? This event is occurring How so? That's what Paul is asking. Verse 3 goes further to affirm this ongoing process. It says, having begun by the Spirit. Notice it didn't say it began by the Spirit and was finished by the Spirit at the same time. It doesn't say it began by the Spirit and was finished by the flesh. It says it was begun by the Spirit. That means that it's yet to be finished. It's yet to be completed. You've yet to be sanctified. You're being sanctified, but you're yet to be finished being sanctified. The truth is that the Spirit both begins and finishes the work. And at the same time, the Galatians were denying by whose power the work was continuing. They weren't denying that it was to continue. They were denying by which means it would continue. They thought that by the deeds of their flesh, the ceremonial laws and things that they were keeping, that they could, in a sense, usher in their own sanctification. They didn't deny that it was an ongoing work. Then we look to Romans chapter 6, verse 22. It says, 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end. Here's the great part. Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me read that to you again. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end. Eternal life. If you're fully sanctified, see you later. You're you're dead. That's what it says. You're passing away. You've reached eternal life. Speaking first of salvation that frees us from slavery to sin. And then Paul moves to tell us how we're now slaves to God. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law and under grace? By no means. Do you not know that it is... Uh, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness. It's the purpose of sanctification. The fruit of our freedom and now the fruit of our slavery to God is knowledge of Christ, a knowledge of Christ that is made manifest by its transforming power. As the text says, the fruit is leading to sanctification. Knowing Christ more intimately each and every day. This yields fruit. And that fruit is being sanctified. It's amazing that people would argue that after we read this, as the end of sanctification is eternal life, not receiving eternal life, but actually realizing eternal life. He's not saying once you've been sanctified, then you'll receive eternal life because this blows a big hole in it too. They believe they're saved. And sometimes they haven't reached complete sanctification. Well, by that very definition, then they would have no eternal life. If, in verse 22, it's speaking that eternal life is the gift they receive. But, when he says it, he's actually saying the fruit, that if sanctification ends with eternal life, he's saying the realization of entering into eternal life. If you take it any other way, it blows holes all in. Complete sanctification. It's not completed. But when it is completed, then you'll be entering into eternal life at that point. It won't happen on this earth. You're not completely sanctified. You need Jesus Christ. Even slaves mess up. Slaves sin, but there is still fruit in their laboring. It's called sanctification. Whose consumption is death of a mortal body, then eternal life present with Jesus Christ. That's the end. The idea is which one is greater. Ask yourselves when we consider sanctification, which one is greater? We shouldn't question the existence of one over the other, of sin or sanctity. They're not, indep- ind- uh, they're not independent of each other. We can't say, well, I either have sin or I have sanctity. And that's what those groups say. We're without sin, now we're completely sanctified. The issue is that if you're being sanctified, which one is greater? Sin is no longer greater in the man or woman who's being sanctified. Holiness is increasing. And it's not your own holiness. It's a holiness given by God through the power of His Spirit. Conformity to what He expects of those who would call themselves followers of Christ. It's a momentary, every moment, dying to sin and dying to the flesh and becoming more like Christ. Immediately following that in Romans chapter 7, verse 21, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here's a man who's saved, yet sin dwells in his members. Wretched man that I am, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He's saying as long as I am in this flesh, I will sin. Yet I'm being presently sanctified. Paul, a saved man, grasped this. Appointed by Christ to fulfill his apostolic ministry, his duties, he says, evil is close. 
Now, if you want to consider yourself completely sanctified or holy, no longer in need of sanctification, then I would say look to Christ. He's holy. Was evil near Him? Was He in danger of sinning? Certainly not. In this sense, He says, it has not been far removed from me, this sin, this wickedness, this evil. The battle is given victory only in that the delight of His inner being is to serve God. His desires have changed. It outweighs the members of his body in their war against the spiritual man. He's saying the things, the desires to serve God, the spiritual man outweighs the fleshly man who wants to serve himself, who wants to sin against God. He goes on in verse 24 to say that he is not completely delivered until what? He says until he is separated from this body of death. There we go. Sanctification is not complete until we're separated from this body of death. The flesh. The flesh is what is so bad. It's because it is inherently indwelled with sin. It makes up every fiber. There's no complete sanctification in this life because sin doesn't cease to exist. Even amongst us who are ransomed by Christ. The resurrection of Lazarus was a great illustration of being made alive in Christ, but it is inferior as far as it foreshadows because Lazarus, at the end, after he's been raised, Jesus says, unloose him. He was unbound by the linen, the stench that bound him. But Paul declares a great truth here. He says, we're not bound by fibrous man-made materials. We're not bound by linen that stinks. We're bound by flesh, deeply rooted sinful flesh that reaches the very inner core of humanity how can we be sanctified fully then sin must no longer be present for us to put on as corrupt individuals in corruption according to first corinthians chapter 15 we must also at the same time put on immortality there's the key paul says sin dwells in me a converted man therefore he is yet perfect He's not been perfected. He's yet to be completely holy. He's still in need of God's sanctifying work. To deny this is to rewrite those definitions of sin and depravity. It's even to rewrite salvation. This is true. Sanctification is living proof of the current working power of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, you, just as you are doing, that you do so, excuse me, more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Are these things inherent in your life? Are you these particular things that Paul addresses here? Are you completely pure? Then you aren't perfect. (coughs) Are you sinless? Because that's what he described there. Then you're not perfect. Are you completely holy? Then you're not perfect. He describes the need for us there in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then he defines sanctification in 1st Thessalonians and then as he moves to 2nd Thessalonians he says but we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ we will be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth the only way be saved through sanctification by faith the idea is that if sanctification is an ongoing process then by these verses we must be those who are being saved 
1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to, the, folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul himself, man of God, being saved is also being sanctified. We need the truth, the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. We need the statutes, his precepts, the commandments. We need his person, which is the living word. We need all of his righteousness, all of his holiness, which we yet to have. If the word of God reflects all of Christ's holiness, then it would be reasonable to say that if you're perfected and perfectly sanctified, then you know and understand and obey each attribution described in Scripture. That's his complete holiness. That's his complete perfectness. And if you have it, then you must have it down pat. You must know every jot and tittle of it, and you must abide by it. Certainly we don't know anyone like this. None of us have kept these things. We need a constant renewal of our minds through the Word, the washing of the water of the Word, as it's described. The same washing that we saw last week in John chapter 13, the washing of the feet. Those who he says are already clean, but their feet need to be washed. They need sanctification. They're positionally clean, but in need of a sanctifying wash. If this were not true, then how could we interpret Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, where it says, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. How would you pursue something that you already have? Certainly, we need Christ, through the power of His Word and His Holy Spirit, to sanctify us, because it's something that we must pursue. Why would the penman of Hebrews instruct us to do that? If it's something that we have already obtained. Jesus prays this in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And he's already told us that they're his. They need to be sanctified. Why? Because they haven't been completely sanctified. He's declared that they're already his. He says, they're not of this world. These, these are the people of my flock as he's praying for them. He asked the Father to keep them from evil. And alas, a picture of sanctification from that God the Holy Spirit will teach men that he will keep them from the desires of evil flesh and the devil. This is sanctification. Sanctification is continual because by Christ's own definition, it's completed through the knowledge of all truth. It continues because the truth of God is eternal. Why do you think sanctification that must keep going until we die and reach eternal life? Because the truth of God, the truth of Christ is eternal. Certainly sanctification can't end because sanctification is the truth of who he is and what he's done. It's continual. Our minds can't grasp all the truth of the gospel. In closing, I want to read this to you. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Sanctification is an ongoing walk. The Bible describes that walk. It's a walk in unity, a walk in purity, a walk in contentment, a walk in faith, a walk in good deeds, serving the brethren, serving Christ, a walk in knowledge, a walk in truth, a walk in wisdom, a walk in light, love, and separation from the world. A walk whose journey is not complete until we've arrived at our eternal destination. Now consider the last part of Galatians chapter 5 that I read to you. It says, 
If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Here's how we can understand sanctification. Like I've said many times, it's the will of God for the Spirit of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. All right, so if that's the truth, if the idea is that the Holy Spirit would conform us to the image of Christ and then we're commanded to walk in Him, why are we walking in Him? Because we need to still be conformed. We still need sanctification. And Paul's message is that it won't come by your deeds. It won't come by ceremonies. It only comes one way. It comes from the cross, through the living Word, by the discernment given of the Holy Spirit. This is something that we should all desire. Something that we should all look at this morning and say, we're not sanctified. We need to be continually sanctified. We constantly need the gospel of Jesus Christ that it would be made effectual under our lives because we need to walk in that spirit because we are yet to look like Christ. We've yet to arrive. We have still something to strive for. Purity, holiness, those attributes which belong only to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, as we come before you again, we thank you so much for this day, God. We thank you for the members of this particular congregation. Lord, we thank you for the visitors that are with us this morning. Lord, we thank you for uh, the truth of your word that you're not a God that has abandoned us. And Lord, although salvation was complete upon the cross as Jesus was dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended, we know that his work is still ongoing, Lord, because we don't desire the things that we once desired. Lord, we know that you're sanctifying us because we are your people. Lord, we pray that you would continue to do that. Lord, we pray that you would mightily work in our lives to remove sin far from us. Lord, make us like Jesus Christ. Make us like your Son to the point that we can't live without professing the name and deeds of Jesus himself. Lord, we know that our works won't save us. They won't make us any better. They won't make us holy. But God, we would just ask that you would work in us to make us holy, Lord. That we would not, in our actions and our thoughts, provoke our mighty, wonderful, heavenly Father. Lord, for you have provided for us a sacrifice that is both sufficient and eternal and perfect. And Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.